we uh, come to the scripture, let me ask you to turn, please, to Luke in chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, this um, passage that deals with the triumphal entry of Jesus um, into Jerusalem begins with verse 28. I'll go through verse 44. So please find Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And... uh, As you find that, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, it's your word to us. Uh, You say it revives the soul, that it brings life, that it's alive. And so we trust that it is. So please now uh, use it to dig deep within us, to um, shed light upon our own hearts, but also to bring a deep and true um, revelation of who you are to us. It will know you um, and trust you. Bless your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he, that is Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Uh, When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, They set Jesus on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, if God will help me, I would like to continue uh, our discussions concerning encounters with Jesus over the last number of months, I suppose. We've been uh, considering various ones as they come upon Jesus, Jesus comes upon them. And, and, and the purpose of all of this, of course, is to, to find out, to see who Jesus is, and also to find out something about ourselves, who we are as we respond to this encounter with uh, Jesus. Today, there's many to encounter. We've got the crowds, we've got the disciples, we have the Pharisees, even the rocks, I suppose, in one sense. Um, but I must tell you, and I'm not even sure why this is the case, but all week long, I've felt inescapably drawn 
to Jesus' encounter with Jerusalem. Uh, But to get there, we need to go through the crowds and the disciples and the Pharisees. You know the scene, I suspect, if you've been in church uh, any period of time at all, at least a a year since last year, because year by year, uh, churches, we uh, consider this text or texts like it uh, because it's Palm Sunday, begins Holy Week. Um, And so we look at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem called the triumphal entry as Jesus comes. It appears in great triumph. He's hailed as the king. Um, We uh, realize for Luke in particular that getting Jesus to Jerusalem has been part of his Narration, part of his storyline, if you will. If you'll run all the way back to Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, we find uh, a chilling almost statement. It just the way that Luke lays it out. Verse 51, Luke 9 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, that's a dramatic change, a dramatic move in, 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 in Luke's account. He wants us to be aware of something. From here on out, we get the sense that Jesus is bent on going, getting to Jerusalem. That's, you, you, you can even see it in his face. He sent his face. Verse 52 then goes on to say, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people didn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Somehow that was communicated. Somehow everyone knew that that's where Jesus uh, was heading. And then throughout, as, as Luke moves us along, he, he reminds us that, that this is the plan. In fact, in chapter 13 and verse 22, we read this. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. This is where uh, he was Headed. And then verse 33 of this same chapter, uh, Luke writes, uh, Jesus saying, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And now we get a hint as to why he's going there. It's related to uh, perishing. And then in Luke chapter 17, verse 11, just as a reminder, we have this. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So, so again, he, Luke is reminding us, yes, we're on our way to um, this Jerusalem. Um, then in chapter 18, in verse 31, he really lays it out. He said, in taking the twelve, um, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for he would be delivered over to the Gentiles, would be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After flogging him, they would kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. and They did not grasp what was said. Perhaps if they did, they wouldn't have gone along uh, with him. But we see that Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. And now we see why he's going to be killed and then. Uh, rise as well. And then in chapter 19, verse 11, again, just another move us along verse. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near 
to Jerusalem. And so, again, now finally Jesus gets there. And we know he's going for the Passover. I mean, that's, that's the presenting view there that he's, he's going, uh, reason he's going there is for the Passover. And pilgrims are on the road with him and, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of them, uh, going up to Jerusalem for, for the Passover. We realize that Jesus is orchestrating this whole event. He sends a couple of disciples out to hotwire a donkey, so with the owner's permission, uh, so that he'll have a ride into uh, Jerusalem. And he's doing that because it had been prophesied by the prophet Zechariah that that's how the Messiah would come. In Zechariah 9.9, this is part of our call to worship this morning. Uh, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so here he comes on this, this, this donkey, um, this full-grown man on this donkey, could have come on a horse, but a horse would suggest war. A donkey suggests peace. And so he comes on a donkey bringing salvation. Now, remember, he told them what was going to happen when he gets there, but they didn't understand that. Uh, and so here he is coming and, and the crowds hail him as king. Um, Luke doesn't have all of the details that the other gospels have with the palm branches waving, this nationalistic symbol of Israel that he's coming to, to rescue us. He's coming to save us from, uh, Rome. Uh, he doesn't even have the shouts of Hosanna, but, but he does have this expression, blessed is the king, blessed is he from Psalm 119, or Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus is being hailed as king which he is which he is they don't understand exactly what that means how he's going to conquer but they see him they know him he is the king he's being hailed as such now the pharisees the religious leaders in the crowds are upset of course because they're continually worried about their own position and they see jesus usurping that with the people particularly and so they rebuke really Jesus so that he will rebuke his disciples and uh, that they wouldn't shout that he's the king coming in the name of the Lord. And of course, Jesus quiets them by saying, if they don't, the rocks will. And I think that would give the Pharisees pause. I think they think, could he really do that? And if the rocks start praising him, we're really in trouble. So let's just, we'll settle for this. And so there we have it. But then, In the midst of all of this rejoicing, in the midst of all of this triumph, in the midst of hailing him as king, and I'm not even sure where this happens along the way. I'm not sure where this happens, but, but people who know this part of the world say you come around a bend where Jesus might have been going and you can get a whole scene, a whole picture of the city of Jerusalem. So perhaps it happened then on this parade into the city. But Jesus weeps. You would think he'd be happy. He wanted this event to take place. He got the donkey. He was ready to go. You'd think that he'd be happy, that he'd be filled with joy. But he weeps. And and the people who know and study language say this word for weep isn't just sort of the kind of crying that one might do where you're upset and you and quietly a tear or so uh, falls down your cheek. This is wailing. 
This is sobbing. Somehow Jesus is, is moved to such a degree that loudly, almost we could say violently, sobs as he looks at the city of Jerusalem. And, you know, why this sadness? I mean, we, we wonder why this, why this this, this, this lament, as I said, you think it would be the opposite. You think he'd be joyful. I mean, everything was building to this. He was hoping to get to Jerusalem. He knows why he's going there. He got the cult ready. And, and now from Psalm 118, they're praising him. And you'd think that he would be happy uh, about that. Finally, they see who he, who he is. But you see, this day is a day of contrast. I mean, on one hand, it's a contrast because we see the majestic Jesus on a donkey. <laughs> we see his majesty and his humility all together. It is a wonderful little sermon. Um, not so little because it was by Jonathan Edwards and nothing was short with Edwards. Um, but it's a sermon called The Excellencies of Christ. And uh, in this, this sermon, uh, he discusses various aspects of the character of Jesus that seem to be mutually exclusive characteristics like majesty and humility. He springs off of Revelation chapter 5 where Jesus is said to be a lion and a lamb. How can both of those be true in one person? A lion of great strength and rule, a, a lamb of humility and giving. But yet in Jesus, both of these things come together with no contradiction. And what we see here is we see the Lord of glory who has been given judgment weeping over those judged. How can that How can all of that go together? He's righteous and holy, yet he weeps over those judged as in Jerusalem. And and why does he weep? Well, we have it in this section, verses 41 to 44, where Jesus draws near. He weeps, verse 42. He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, the weeping of Jesus because they don't know the things that make for peace. Now, this not knowing isn't the fact that they're not very smart. It's a willful not knowing. They've rejected the knowing. It's a decision not to know. They've been blinded by their own ambition. They've been blinded by their own way, and they're missing the way of God. And and Jesus is sad about that so much so that he's he's weeping. They couldn't see it. He's weeping because he knows the consequences of this. He knows what's going to happen. In 40 years, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed and it's going to be destroyed in, in a way that fits how Jesus describes it here. It's a devastating destruction of Jerusalem. And then he he's sad as well because he realized that they did not know the time of their visitation. They didn't know the time that the Jesus, that the Son of God would actually visit them, that God, Emmanuel, God with them, would be with them. And they missed it. 
And here's Jesus weeping about that. And I wonder, I think, well, Jesus, I mean, they deserved it, right? So why so upset? I mean, they actually deserved all of this. So, so Jesus, why are you uh, so upset? I mean, they, they should have known the way of peace. I mean, they had it right before them every day. I mean, they were the, they were the, the city of kings. And yet now that the king has come, they've, they've rejected the king. They're the city of God. And, and the center of religious life was right in Jerusalem. The temple was there, the dwelling place of God with his, his people. The way of peace was right there. They should have been able to see it. The sacrifices, the substitutes for them so they could live in the presence of God. The priests to intercede from this way of peace. They should have been able to see it. I mean, they're on their way to Passover. How, how could they not see it? How could they not see that the way of peace with God is that another is taken in my place so that I may live under God? Uh, how could they miss that, especially this this time of year? Uh, their lips and their hearts. From their lips, yes. From their hearts, no. They they missed it. Uh, the prophets had come to them and spoken truth, and now that the prophet has come, they missed that. Jesus, you get the sense, gets their whole history in in one in one look. Though he came to his own, his own did not receive him. And that's what we find here. <clears throat> and yet here's Jesus. He was, he was the one who it was the fulfillment of all that had been promised. The fulfillment of the passage in Genesis chapter 3. He's the one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. Uh, he's the fulfillment of what was spoken to, to, um, to, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It's through him that all the families of the earth would be blessed. He's the one about which the prophet Isaiah spoke that, 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 that a son would be born a child, born a son given, and the government would be upon his shoulders, and there'd be no end to his rule and reign. He was that very one. He was the one who would come, and upon his shoulders, upon him, would the iniquity of us all be put, so that we, sheep all astray, going our own way, could therefore be forgiven our sins. That one! They, they missed it. Now John gives us the particulars on how they missed it in John in chapter 11, verse 48. Uh, the concern of the religious leaders was this. They said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, what they were concerned about their self, themselves, their own, their own place, they were concerned about the nation. Obviously, they lost both. But they were going to do all that they thought was right to do to keep that uh, from happening. But then I have to ask, too, couldn't God change all that? I mean, why did Jesus have to be so sad? Couldn't he have changed all of, all of that? Remember when we had this encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, Jesus said, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you've been born again. And the good news of that is that 
the Holy Spirit can bring this new life so that we can be born again. So, so couldn't God have changed that? If Jesus is so upset about it, why, 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 why doesn't he just change the situation? Um, well, these tears, may I suggest, are somewhat like the tears that Jesus shed at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. Turn to John chapter 11. I, I won't read all of this, but it might be nice to have it in front of you if you're able. But John chapter 11, this encounter that Jesus has with Mary and Martha and ultimately uh, their brother Lazarus. You, you know the story. The story is that, that Lazarus was sick or came to Jesus. Jesus waited, didn't go up when he was sick, waited actually until uh, Lazarus died. And then he went up. And he encounters Martha, Lazarus' sister, first. And she says to him that the natural thing that you would expect anyone to say to Jesus in a situation like this, verse 21 of John 11, said, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, what God will give. And, and that's, that's the real question, isn't it? Jesus, if you'd come, why didn't you come? Because if you had come, he wouldn't uh, have died. Then Jesus knocks her socks off, ours too, when ultimately he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so you get the sense that we're being prepared for something. But Jesus is saying through that encounter who he is. He's the resurrection and the life. There's life that comes through him. Even when we die, there's resurrection through Jesus. And then he comes upon Martha's sister, Mary. And, and she confronts Jesus in the same way, verse 32, with the same, the same comment. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, at that point, as I'm reading through the narrative, I'm thinking, well, he'll tell Mary the same thing he told Martha, but he doesn't say anything to her. He weeps. And again, you wonder, Jesus, I know how this ends. So why are you so upset? Why are you weeping now? Why don't, why don't you just tell everybody to cheer up? Come to the tomb. You're going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why this stopped to weep? Well, the comments made about Jesus weeping by the folks around the tomb reveal to us the why. They say, see how he loved him. You see, if we skip that step, we might have in our head that Jesus loved him, but we wouldn't know the reason why exactly or how deep that love was. It was so deep that he grieved. And he grieved, yes, the death of his friend, but also he looked at death itself and said, this is wrong. I see the misery of this. And he entered in not only to Lazarus being dead, but, but also death itself to say, this is wrong. This is why I've come to deal with this. And it brings him to tears. He grieves deeply there. And that makes the whole story. That makes the whole incident for us. Because you see, if Jesus just would have ridden into town, shown his power, raised Lazarus from the dead, tipped his hat and said goodbye, that'd be great. I'm sure Mary and Martha would be appreciative. 
But then I would think if nothing had been done like this, uh, his crying, Mary and Martha might say, hey, if ever this happens again, will Jesus come back and do this? Uh, does he really care? See, the tears say, I really care. Somehow, though he was going to raise him from the dead, though he had that power, though he knew exactly what he was going to do and all of that, he, he was going to reverse the difficulty, the problem. Still, he wept. Why? Because he's communicating to us what's really true, that he really cares. You might remember from last week, our worship time together, we talked about uh, the storm on the sea. And the question that the disciples had for Jesus was, essentially, don't you care that we're dying? Don't you care that we're going to be killed? Don't you care that we're perishing? I mean, it's one thing to be afraid because of the pending death. Uh, it's another thing uh, if you think nobody cares. And the people who can do something about this don't care. That's even more frightful. And so they turned to Jesus, don't you really care? And the answer that we received that week was, yes, I do. I really do. And, and, and what we see with Mary and Martha is, yes, I really do care. My tears prove that. And this wasn't something Jesus put on. This came from him. To communicate to everyone, I I'm doing this, raising Lazarus, because I care, because I really do love. Yes, I'm going to conquer sin and death. Why? Yes, to glorify my father. Why? To show the depth of his love. That's what I'm about to do. And so when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he sees the city and he knows what's going to happen. He weeps. Why? Because he cares. Somehow, in the midst of this sovereign Lord, who is sovereign over his mercy, cares and loves so much so that when he sees the, the misery the rebellion against God causes, when he sees the misery that sin causes, when he sees the misery that results from when people go their own way, it reduces him, brings him to tears, heavy, deep, wailing, sobs, and he's sharing with us, I'm entering Jerusalem to do what I'm going to do because I love. Because you see the end result of sin. And I'm coming now to deal with it. Because I love. And his tears are what is to reveal that, you see, to us. See, these tears don't reflect that Jesus is frustrated. Like he looks at the situation and says, there's nothing I can do about it. His tears don't reflect the fact that any way, shape or form that he or his father has failed in the plan of salvation because uh, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and all of that. Or they reject this very one who has come upon them. Uh, It's not that at all. He cries because he loves. When I... uh, preach uh, difficult subjects, I bring along my friends to help say it as well. Uh, Philip Ryken, who was, when he wrote this, the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, now is the president of Wheaton College, puts it like this. He said, Jesus Christ was a man of perfect 
passion. He was not weepy or sentimental, but he did cry about the things that broke his loving heart. He was not moody or bad-tempered, but he was angry about hypocrisy and injustice. In the intensity of his emotions, we see the true and perfect humanity of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, not that Jesus was weeping for himself, of course, as if he were prone to self-pity. No. He was sobbing with compassion for lost sinners who could not or would not see who he was. He was coming to them with the peace of salvation, but they refused to have it. And we see his heart. Oh, how can these things be in one person, this sovereign Lord who can change hearts and this sovereign, merciful Lord who weeps when hearts aren't changed? But we need to get the picture of his care, of his love, of his compassion. B.B. Warfield, a theologian of significance in the first part of the last century, Princeton theologian in an essay entitled The Emotional Life of Our Lord, makes the observation that when Jesus is said to be upset, he's always more upset that his sobs more deeply, sighs more deeply, and unbelief than even at physical difficulties. There are times when he, sh- when he sighs and heals someone. And there are times when he sighs at unbelief. His sighs at unbelief are always deeper. So, Warfield says, we may at any rate place the loud wailing over the stubborn unbelief of Jerusalem and the deep sighing over the Pharisees' determined opposition side by side as exhibitions of the profound pain given to our Lord's sympathetic heart by those whose persistent rejection of him require at his hands his sternest reprobation. He sighed at the bottom of his heart when he declared, there shall no sign be given this generation. And he wailed aloud when he announced, the day shall come upon thee when thine enemies shall dash thee to the ground. In this sentence... It hurt Jesus to hand over even hardened sinners to their doom. Somehow, we need to see him like that. What moved him from this triumphal entry of Palm Sunday to Good Friday were his tears, his love. He knew what was ahead of him. We knew how difficult that was for him. The Garden of Gethsemane scene is one of the most dramatic scenes in all of history, if we could put it like that. And Jesus is is facing, not simply dying, but he's facing the wrath of God as any man ought to face the wrath of God. Saying, if I don't have to do this, could you take it away? But he took it. So when we say to God, we don't want to experience that, could you take it away? He can say, I did. What drove Jesus were his tears, his love. 
And we need to see that. We need to to really know that. You might remember when Jesus was with his disciples on one occasion. This is in Matthew in chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, that's the heart of Jesus. That's how he sees the lost. He has compassion on them. Compassion is the active sense of of his love, really, in order to, to bring about that which corrects it, that which brings healing. And so then he said to his disciples, pray uh, earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's how Jesus uh, thought of, of, of unbelievers. And so, so, so we should think that way too, right? We, we should think that way too. We should have that kind of heart. Uh, maybe particularly in these days, you know, of... What do you say to someone who's yet to come to faith, who is an unbeliever and you're presenting Jesus and and you can say to him, you know, the Lord desires for you to come to him. How do we know that? Well, because he gave himself for sinners like you. Well, well, why did he do that? Because of his tears, because he loves, you see. He sees the end result of your life. And it brings him to tears. And it brings him to compassion. And it brought him to action. To give himself, you see. And as we share with those who don't believe, sometimes it's easy to get into arguments and big theological discussions. And we enjoy that. That's sort of fun. But but there's something deeper, really, at a human, emotional, godly level the very love of Christ. That's that's what we plead with. That's what he pled with. His tears, the very love of Christ, how we're to love. And you know, if the Lord Jesus looks at a person's life, and the Lord Jesus looks at that person's life and says, you're not a believer in me, and that makes me cry. It makes me cry because I see the end result of that. Wouldn't you want to reconsider your life? I mean, I've had counselors in my life come to me and say, Bill, I think you're on the wrong track here. And, uh, and, 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 and I might agree or might disagree. But depending on, on how much they love me uh, is what determines how much I listen. And when I know it's a person who really loves me, you see, and who will weep, if they see me go in the wrong direction, then I listen. And this is Jesus. He loves. We should listen. When he says, here's the end result of that, it brings me to tears. I can only imagine what it might bring to you, you see. I know what it will bring to you. So please, please listen. Paul, Paul shares this way in Romans in chapter 6. In verse 20, he says, But when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That is, when 
you're going on your own way. You were free with regard to righteousness. But then he says in verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? He said, what, 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 how'd that do for you? I mean, what really happened uh, in that life? If you find yourself even now afraid of death, well, that's the fruit of a life of unbelief. You should be afraid of it. And Jesus comes and says, well, I know the end result of that. Please trust me. I've come to give myself for you. Paul goes on to say, for the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, see, that's, that's the blessing of it. Uh, Jesus came through tears that we might have eternal life. There's one more thing. And, and this, um, This may be the thing that is weighed on me. It's this expression to them because you did not know the time of your visitation. And I can't help but think that the times in which we live right now, the Lord may be saying, I'm visiting you. J.C. Ryle, Anglican bishop, 19th century, um, put it like this, if I may find it. He says, what we see thirdly from these verses is that God sometimes is pleased to give men special opportunities and invitations. We are told by our Lord that Jerusalem knew not the day of her visitation. Jerusalem had a special season of mercy and privileges. The Son of God himself visited her. I mean, that's a pretty clear visitation of God when the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. The mightiest miracles that man had ever seen were wrought around her. The most wonderful preaching that had ever uh, was heard was preached within her walls. Uh, the days of our Lord's ministry were days of the clearest calls to repentance and faith that any city ever received. They were calls so marked, peculiar, and unlike any previous calls Jerusalem had received, that it seemed impossible that they should be disregarded. But they were disregarded. And the Lord declares that disregard was one of Jerusalem's principal sins. And, 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 and obviously the Lord isn't walking around as he did in those days and so forth. But I, I can't help but think the moment in which we live, because we're so preoccupied with death. And, 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 and death is not a bad thing to think about. Um, the preacher, Ecclesiastes, put it like this in chapter 7. He said, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And his point was that, that, that we pay way more attention in the house of mourning than we do uh, when life seems good. And we're in the house of 
morning, these days, it's all over the news. It's all we talk about. It's how we live our whole lives. Protection. Not unwise, but it's simply on our minds all the time. Could this be a time when the Lord is saying to us, think about these things. See, the danger for us is that we think that if we escape this virus, then we'll be fine. We forget that we'll die of something else. As one person put it, COVID-19 has not increased the death rate. It's still one per person. And now can we think about these things together? As, as those who are churched people, can we, can we spend a moment this week examining our own lives? Is this really true for us? Do I really trust in Christ? Is he really my hope? Have I repented? Have I, I turned from my own way and, and, and trusted in him? Of course, all of us will say, well, yeah, I've repented and I'm continuing to repent. And that's a good sign. And, and yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. Uh, that's a good sign. It's true for us. But the question is, for those who have yet to come to faith, why not? Jesus sees the end of the road and it makes him cry. So much so that he's come and said, I've given myself for you, so you don't need to go there. You don't need to experience that. So please, he says, come to me. Know the way that makes for peace. It's the way of repentance, turning away. It's a way of faith, trusting in me. And so for all of us, what I would encourage us as we enter this holy week, that we enter it seeing Jesus in tears. And that enables us to see that what he's about to do for us is because he loves us. So we can take deep comfort in knowing that he really does care, that he really does love us, that he really has made the way, and that we really may, can, must trust in him. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we're grateful for all that Christ has done for us. We, we marvel at, at your love. This love that compelled you, Jesus, to come and to give yourself for us. Enable us, I pray, in these days to know your compassion and grace. Enable us, I pray, to love others as you have loved us. And Father, I pray that you would help each of us to take stock of our lives. And may we honor Christ the Lord by trusting him and by following him. God, I pray that many would come to faith realizing that this is the day of your visitation, that you are calling all to repentance and faith. Please, Lord, open the hearts of many to receive you. Father, this virus has affected much in our lives. The week before last, we mourned the death of our our brother Tim Russell from Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis. Be with his wife and his church. Even closer to home, we mourn the loss of our brother, Sean Shelton. I pray for his family, that you would be with them in this time of loss and with them. We're grateful for his life. I'm grateful for his 
keen mind and his kind-heartedness. And we're grateful that you saved him. That now he's with you. While the others are anxious and afraid for their health and the health of those they love, may we see Jesus and know that he's the Lord. Uh, see his compassion and know that he cares. May we know his power and his wisdom and trust that his rule and reign is good. And then a day will come and we'll see his glory cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Until that day, uh, we can be still knowing that you're God. Father, others are anxious because of finances, loss of savings, loss of employment. Father, sustain us all in this time of uncertainty and difficulty. May we look to you for our provision and care. Father, we're grateful for the good that we're seeing in our church, the outpouring of love for others, the intentional communication that's happening as people reach out to one another, especially to those who are otherwise lonely or in need. Can we thank you for the effort so many are taking to stay connected? I, I pray that we never take one another for granted. That we always cherish our friendships, our family, this body to which we belong. Draw us closer to one another in these days. So we pray, O oh Lord, that you bring healing where there is sickness, comfort where there is grief, a sense of your presence where there is loneliness. Please, Lord, spare us. Through the skill of those in the medical community, many would be restored to health. Give wisdom and strength to those who are searching for a cure. We ask that you would stop the spread of this disease, that we may see your glory and give you thanks. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.